BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, The Next Pandemic is Here. In today's deep dive, homelessness has now truly become a second pandemic in the U.S., with encampments in cities all over the country, making the challenges of this issue visible to the entire world. Have we reached a point of no return? And in our Courage or Cringe segment, Tulsi Gabbard weighs in on race, transgender sports decisions, and Manhattan decriminalizes prostitution. Is it true that racialization of culture is impacting the way we look at one another? Or is this insensitive naivete from those not directly impacted? Are we making progress on addressing transgender issues and policy? Or are the players involved simply passing the buck on a difficult issue? Does decriminalization reduce negative impact and consequences on vulnerable people, or does it inadvertently support the very problems it's meant to address? This and a whole lot more on this special On the Road episode of TDR. Austin, baby. We are in Austin. We're on the road, so, you know, we're excited to be here. Uh, Is this our first On the Road show? This is our first non-student... No, well, we had the yeah. When we remember when we first started, yeah. we were you know the studio wasn't built yet, so therefore we had a number. There were different locations. Everything's on the road at that point, right? We're but this is the first the since we unveiled the studios. This is the first time that we're recording outside of the studio, and for a very good reason, I think. Yeah. Very timely for what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So I haven't been in Austin, and how long has it been since you've been in Austin? It's been a while. Like you know, as as you know, I, I lived in Texas. Uh, for Wait, you're not n- from Texas? Not from I Texas, unlike you, what you always are saying. <laughs> uh, but, but no, yeah, I lived in Texas for nine years in Dallas, so did get a chance to spend quite a bit of time in Austin, um, but hadn't been here, I mean, I don't know, it, had to be, it has to be at least, you know, five to seven years, I guess, something like that. Yeah, probably the same thing for me, too. I yeah. mean, it's, it's always been, you know, Austin, keep it weird. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, sure. you know, it's a, it's a super eclectic and interesting city. But I think as it relates to, um, you know, the topic that we're going to cover, there's a, there's a reason that we're here in Austin, particularly for, for this issue. Right. So, you know, obviously we're talking about homelessness and uh, as part of, the, part of the reason we're here is to, is to visit uh, Community First Village, right, which is this really innovative um, community that's been set up by Alan Graham um, as a way to address homelessness. And, you know, what really caught our attention is, 
is sort of the core insight, right, that uh, that Alan uh, used in terms of determining how he wanted to build this community, which is around this essence that homes alone, you know, can't solve for homelessness. Right. Um, and, and this thought about, you know, really when you think about the, what the root cause in many cases for why people end up homeless is the loss of family, loss of community. So I think that's a really interesting idea. Sure. And, and we're going to be spending some time today visiting the village. Uh, but, you know, our understanding, at least from, from what we know of it, is that a lot of the sort of the, the ethos of how it's been built is to try to recreate this community environment where people feel supported when they're there. So not just simply giving them a roof over their head, but giving them that social infrastructure to some extent, that community infrastructure to be able to support each other that just helps people transition. I think that's many, many times a problem that happens with many of the solutions that are out there that they don't address some of these some of these issues that folks are bringing in as they're walking through the door. As we do this show, we're not we haven't yet toured the village, but for everybody just to kind of visualize it and I'll try to remember to bring this up at the end of the show, but if you want to find out more about it, it's mlf.org, mlf.org. But this village is now at this point 50 plus acres Mm-hmm. of tiny homes that are in East Austin, kind of in the outskirts of the you know city, um, that basically has tried to recreate a sense of community. And they have, uh, you know, to your point, they've sort of hit on this idea that it's not just a roof over your head, but um, the fact that you have neighbors, the fact that neighbors actually care about you, like all that stuff right. is what makes people be able to rebound from this. And I think it's awesome. So we'll have a lot more to say about this, maybe in future shows as we've got the benefit of that experience, but it does bring to mind stuff that we live with in LA. And by the way, here too, I mean, we, we it's got here in Austin right? and there's yeah. encampments and tents everywhere, but in LA it's become a complete, uh, uh, you know, the city in a way has been overrun by this mm-hmm. issue. And so, you know, it's a, like anything else, it's a deep issue, which is why it's our deep dive. But how do we begin to even kind of parse this out? Where do we start with where things are. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one is we've been talking about this for a while, but as we think of homelessness, you know, we sort of, I think we've been talking about this, that it, we don't, we always felt this was sort of the second pandemic that was coming that to some extent, you know, has been ignored, I would say. Um, and when it's not ignored, you know, the only strategy that's seen me put in place is, you know, how to get people to just not be outside of my front door. Right. Like now, move, like move them, put, right. put, put like people somewhere else. Yeah. Location-based strategy, right? Yeah, it's like, exactly. How do we put them just not in my location, right? Right. Um, now, I think part of the reason why we're talking about it as well, it, not just because we're, we're being here, but that recently, as you know, CNN reported, you know, the federal government has now committed about $70 billion in investment in helping people find and keep their housing you know, as part of the COVID relief packages that were recently approved, right? So something that many cities and and states are now racing to figure out how they're going to use that right the problem is and this is why we think it's going to you know potentially get a lot a lot worse is that the federal moratorium on eviction is about to expire it's going to expire on june 30th that because up until now you haven't been able to get kicked out of where right so that has kept people in their houses even though obviously many people were deeply impacted by the pandemic in terms of losing employment and sure. with the number of shutdowns that happened in many of the states across the, the country. Um, but those bills are still due, right? right. In most cases, yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. being, you know, they're backing up, backing kicking up. The can. Yep. They're kicking the can. And now with that moratorium being, you know, expiring, that's going to mean a lot of people getting evicted from the places. In many cases, as you know firsthand, Charlie, and dealing with obviously many families that are at that moment, 
it's so easy for people that are already at the at the brink to all of a sudden completely lose their homes and not ever make it back, right? One of the things just that we've done, because I don't know if everybody knows that I've been involved with the subject of homelessness uh, with my wife in a nonprofit for about 20 years. But one of the things, Jesus, on that exact point that you just said, that we focus a lot of our energies on is on this concept of, of obstacle grants. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is the thing that is in your way right now that we can get rid of so that you don't hit that, 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 um, that kind of gap or crack in the sidewalk because everything is so, you know, end to end that one little dip me, it makes a difference between a family being out or not. And so we focus our energy on like, is it the washing machine broke? Is it the light bill needs to be paid? What is that one thing so that you don't fall into that gap? Because it's always, the the risk is there at every second, right? There's not a nest egg. There's not a savings account. There's not a family network. Did your car break down? And now you need a thousand bucks to fix it. it. Because your car is broken down, you can't get to work. And there's like this, you know, ripple effect that happens very quickly. So there is the federal moratorium that is, that is expiring right, June 30th. There's also then FEMA is also ending their subsidies to cities for moving homelessness people into hotels by September, right? Because that's part of the movement sure. as part of the how to address just having less people being around each other to some extent, especially homeless people, FEMA was doing this. We put a lot of folks in motels and hotels and the hotels yeah. and motels were empty. Were empty. So for the hotels and motels, they were fine with it because it also helped them generate some revenue during that time. But as it's expi- expiring, the homelessness problem is really set to explode, right? Um, now, what's interesting with the $70 billion that we that is once uh, included in the federal government, you know, that could provide housing for as many as 130,000 people What's really interesting is that it only represents about 25%, 25% of those who were homeless before the pandemic. It's crazy. There's 60,000. Cra- that is crazy when we think about it from that perspective. There's more than 6,000 people. It's only a quarter of the people that were already before, homeless. before, before COVID. Yeah. Right. The, stat, the other stat for LA, which is a lot of stuff going on in LA right now, um, a federal judge just ordered that- right, um, right that Skid Row be vacated and there's a billion dollar like forced kind of yeah. grant thing, but there's 60,000 homeless just in LA. Just in LA, which I was gonna go to that next, right? So in LA, US District Judge David Carter, as you mentioned, <laughs> recently ordered the city and county officials to find housing for all people living on Skid Row by the fall. Mm-hmm. And for any of you familiar with LA who have been to Skid Row, I mean, it feels like a scene from a you know third world country. Yeah, for sure. And like the worst parts of a third world country, right? I mean, it's it's really bad. Calcutta. Right? It looks like Calcutta in now, some places. Well, it was really interesting in, in, in reading his comments that Judge Carter said, right? He said, look, Los Angeles has lost its parks, beaches, schools, sidewalks, and highway systems due to the inaction of city and county officials who have left our homeless citizens with no other place to turn. Mm-hmm. Bureaucrats create statistics, trumpeting their efficiency and success of the public, but none of this has led to accountability or solutions. All of the rhetoric, rhetoric promises, plans, and budgeting cannot obscure the shameful reality of this crisis, that year after year, there are more homeless Angelinos, and year after year, more homeless Angelinos die on the streets. Preach like, it. That is strong. And it's all true. And it's all true, right? So that's the... You know, that's the real situation. Now that in combination with, as you mentioned, LA Mayor Eric Garcetti, Garcetti announced his budget for the next fiscal year, which vowed to dedicate about a billion dollars towards homelessness, right? Um, as you mentioned, now, according to the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, uh, in 2020, about 13, uh, about 1,383 homeless people died and an estimated five more die each day. Right in 2020, the more than 66,000 people in Greater Los Angeles are who were experiencing homelessness. 
which increased by about 13% countywide, you know, this past year. On that subject. So that's like getting just worse and worse. And with the moratorium ending, you can only imagine what that number is going to grow to, right? It's it's just going to get completely out of control. What's the number that you just said on the deceased 1,300? Yeah, uh, almost 1,400. So 1,383. Okay. There are about five people each day who... And this is what's reported. I mean, part of the challenge I have to imagine with the homeless unreported people bailing, people leaving town. Well, just on that subject of, because, you know, know, we we obviously, um, for the most part, 99% of people will see obviously homeless people, but never see the homeless person who, uh, you know, statistically they won't anyway, but somebody has to, will run into the homeless person who just passed away, literally dying on the street. There is a ceremony that gets done every year. I've been invited to a number of times that I have not yet gone to where there's the interment, basically the burying of a lot of these folks who have no name. They cannot be tracked down, have no family. And it's a multi-faith thing. There's like all different kinds of faiths represented at this thing. But it really does, when you read about this and see this against the, the number you just shared, 1,300, it really begins to give you a sense of the magnitude here that there are not just 1,300 people who die, but scores of them who you don't even know who they are right. can't connect them with their next of kin because they've no documentation. They've got no medical records. I mean, it's it really is gotten to a point where it's catastrophic, right? At, at this point, and so it brings you to the logical question, which is, what do you do about it? And right. I, you know, we've in popular culture, we talked about this just recently. You know, big voices in the popular culture. You know, Joe Rogan is an example because we're in Austin, and so is he, right? Um, he, he talks about this as an issue. He's like, yeah, it's just so big. I don't know what you could do about it. Like, there's just nothing we could do about it. And and it, it's I hear more about it in that context. Like, it's just gotten so big, so wild. Like, that I think I feel people feel generally speaking that there's not much we can really do that we can really kind of have an impact in. And therefore a lot of the emphasis gets put on let's to your earlier point, ship them somewhere. Let's get right. them somewhere. Yeah. Other location based strategies. And even when I hear like that, frankly, my reaction to comments like that is, is either like throwing your hands up, nothing we could do about it. But there's also like this point of view of really of looking at this problem as a nuisance more than Correct. a humanity problem, Correct. more than our neighbors, because they are our neighbors, whether or not they have a physical address assigned to their name, they're still, or have a name for that matter, that people even know, they're still people. And I think that most, when we, we think about it, it is sort of the point of view of a nuisance, something that happened not that long ago, we didn't include it in our notes, in Echo Park, they had a, they like were cleaning out basically the park because for the become Academy a, Awards, a big encampment. That's actually before the Academy oh, Awards. The, okay. Before the yeah, Echo Park was before. Maybe it was in preparation. I don't know. It was like a month ago. Yeah, when that happened. No, I think it was all related to that. And then Academy Awards, to your point, yeah. also kind of cleaned up the area. And it's just like it all goes back to like getting rid of this it does. nuisance. It's very that discarding, is very transactional. And it's so sad when you think about in these places, especially in places that are very expensive properties, high net, you know, net worth individuals that live, live in these places. At the same time, you have, right as you walk out, outside, is these people that are, that are just at the, at the bottom of, of, of life to some extent, right? Um, I and, think this is the kind of thing that you, you yeah. don't think about it traditionally in, in a place like the U.S. that you would think about in places like... Developing like, nations. Like, like India, for example, right? We see like this really extreme sort of, uh, um, uh, in terms of wealth, right? Like extreme poverty with extreme wealth all in the same place interacting with each other. Well, I've seen that. That's, that's Again, that, that's where, like, for instance, I've been, I haven't been to Calcutta, but I've been to Rio uh, and, and seen the famous favelas that they have, which are essentially the slums of Rio. And you've got, you know, obviously the sort of well-off folks and then yeah. the, the abject poor. And that's kind of a mentality I think that we're beginning to adopt here, which is 
certainly using LA as an example, let's put these folks on the beach. Let's put them in parks. Let's put them in some other you know, yeah. place, which ultimately is just some variation of creating a slum is essentially what that does it on is, a practical yeah. level. I mean, I get the urgency of people like that fastidiousness of like, I, we got to do something great. But the, the, the solution in this case seems, if that's the outcome, seems like a really, really bad solution relative yeah. to what the issue and actually is. And when you think is. about solving the problem, look, I mean, part of what we looked at here is this article that CNN put together where they actually put a POV on how they believe states and cities should try to use the $70 billion in funding to address homelessness, right? And you kind of put it in two main buckets, although they kind of broke into three different things. One is how do you prevent homelessness? And then what do you do to address the actual homeless issue that you have here, right? So in the first one on preventing homeless, homelessness, which is actually what they were suggesting the majority of the money should go towards. $52 billion in rental assistance, right? Now, back rent, as we talked about, continues to pile up. According to uh, analytics, uh, Moody's uh, analytics, they estimate that in January, the nationwide, the, in terms of the, the, the back rent pileup was around $57 billion from all the people that have not been paying rent that as soon as the moratorium is, is gone are going to get you know evicted. So that's the money that basically landlords have not collected. Correct. Right. And, you th- and I mean, the, the thing that is interesting there, and I don't know how it's been solved for, but, you know, in some cases for some of these landlords, also yeah. see from their perspective, like, are they still having to pay mortgages on these, on these properties mm-hmm. and they're not getting any, collected any rent? What does that all mean for them? Right. So the idea here is, can we use that in order to support people to be able to pay the rent that they haven't been able to pay otherwise that would avoid them from actually becoming homeless, right? A little bit of the situation that we discussed. So that's sort of one big bucket where they were recommending a, a lion's share of the of the capital we use towards. The other one is is in providing these emergency housing, which sounds a lot more to what you're describing, which is whether it's these places, location-based strategies. How do you put people into homes, into houses? Right. Yeah. Roof overhead kind of scenario. They were saying, you know, their, their idea was like, well, maybe let's put $5 billion towards vouchers, right? Where people now, could just go wherever they want. They go, but, 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 but that on, doesn't before, work yeah, very well, right? It, Even they yeah. talked about it here. Like They're saying there's a very long waiting list for housing vouchers, even before the pandemic. Of course. That's what's happening with this new tiny home thing in LA that they built is like, in order to get into it, it's like, it's almost like going to the DMV to get a mortgage. I mean, it's in, it's an impossibility. They're, right. It, it, the, the entire thing is almost dead on arrival from my perspective. Well, yeah. And they say, even they say here, like in normal times, three out of four low-income renters eligible for housing assistance, they never receive because of lack, because of lack of funding. So whatever yeah. the line is, yeah. they just never actually get it. And then the third problem is even when they do get it in places like California, lack of affordable housing makes, makes it really hard to find a place based on the amount of, of actual voucher that they're actually getting. So that one seems not a great solution. Maybe part of the reason why they're saying only put five of the 70 billion towards that, right? Sure. It will help some people, but it's not the solve. And then the third piece, which, which they get into is, is actually looking at affordable housing you know, another 5 billion here um, that includes buying hotels, motels, and a used apartment buildings to convert into affordable housing. Um, now in California specifically, they provided more than 800 million in grants to support 93 of these type of projects. Yeah. Right? I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the first part though. And I, I yeah. want to get to some things that I've seen in my own experience um, that have worked. The first part about the, the general buckets, prevent and then deal yeah. with what's currently here. And the prevention side, the, the first thing you mentioned, according to the CNM piece, was rental assistance. Mm-hmm. And I agree that that's a good thing that we should look at. But I don't think that that's the before homelessness far enough. In other words, 
that's still addressing somebody who's really living sort of edge right to edge, edge yeah. right at the edge, right? It's like, what are the really the underlying issues that lead someone, you know, um, to have these situations or that that destroy the network required so that if you miss a, a rent check and you have to get out of a place, you're now on the street. That's really the issue, right? right? Because if you, and let's just say, God forbid, you and I are... You know, Nick, our producer here, you know, lost out on the ability to pay their mortgage or their rent. The The next step after that would probably be a network of people who'd be like, hey, you know what? Come stay with me. Live on the couch. Let me hook you up with a buddy who's got X, Y, Z. Right. In these cases, that network is not there. And so I think one of the reasons why this community first village that we're at visiting in Austin has been successful is because it's, it's put the emphasis on recreating the community. So my first challenge to what you said would be, that I think we've got the the hack in the wrong part of what the problem is. I think we've, we've we're trying to hack uh, the housing part. Like let's create three D houses and tiny houses and all that. And I think that's good. But I think that if we started thinking about how to hack the community, the family, the kind of relational aspect of it, we might be better at least as it relates to that pre homelessness phase yeah. of the argument. I, I don't disagree. I think the challenge that I see here is look. Think about it in the context of being in a boat, right? You have people that already are homeless now that need help immediately, right? Sure. Those two, I will put that as, as the holes in the boat. People that already are sinking. DEFCON 5. Right, yeah. DEFCON 5. So maybe in terms of order prioritization, you could think about how do we start putting patches? doesn't even matter how strong that patch is. Just something just stop. Right, put your finger in the, the immediate sort of hole. flow of yeah. water. Mm -hmm. That's sort of phase one. Phase two is, let's look at the areas that have, that already have, are maybe the wood is deteriorating that it's already about to become a hole that is so like you can see it's about to happen any second what do we do about, about solving that problem yeah and then let's actually look at the infrastructure of this boat to figure out how do we make this thing stronger so that you avoid more people end up in that situation but i agree with you. that's why it's so difficult to do i think the i think you're right my only challenge that i have for for that perspective is i think it's such a complex issue to solve for to it is figure out how to rebuild to the, yeah. the normal type of network that people would have because it's very decentralized and depending on where you live, size of family, whether you're an immigrant or not, and you Absolutely. have direct, you know, family yeah. that lives within the area you are, it, it, they all look like very different solves. Right? And that gets at the heart of what I'm trying to say, because I do believe that if there is a solution, and I think actually asking what is the perfect solution is even the wrong question. Because I think the solution looks a lot like life does with all its ups and downs and its, you know, strangeness. Because the solution for me is multifaceted. It's got multi-actors. It's got a number of different interventions along this continuum. I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a million different things. The work that we do with the homeless, frankly, and we've been doing for 20 years, is fundamentally almost like being like their buddy, their friend, their family. Like we walk with them. We advocate for them. We'll go to the CPS meeting and fill out the paperwork. We'll say, Hey, there's a resource. Did you know it existed? We're literally just walking with them like we would, you know, an uncle or a friend or somebody we went to school with. Like that's, that's what we do. Somebody else provides the physical home. Somebody else maybe does a, you know, mental uh, approach to it. Right. So I think that the first thing for me is that um, it's solving the problem is recognizing that it is a multifaceted, decentralized, to use your word, decentralized thing that, um, that needs to all happen simultane simultaneously for it to actually have, you know, right. a, a positive 
effect. So that for, for that. me is yeah, like, for is sure. like step one, you know, in understanding this. And then the second thing related to that is that to the extent that things have been centralized, they're done with good intent, but they usually get kind of jammed up. So as an example, in 20 years that we've been doing this work, we work with a lot of families who have been in Section 8 housing, right? Section 8 is basically like, you know, Department of, yeah. I don't even know how you would describe it, but it's basically like kind of government. Government-supported housing. Government-supported housing. Yeah. Now, the idea of Section 8 was always to be transitional. Come in, stay for a period of time, move on to the next thing that's more right. permanent. In 20 years doing this, I've never once seen that happen with a family who's in Section Someone 8. Someone actually moved on. Someone actually moved on. So the, the, question, the, the thing for me is that to the extent that things have been done in this sort of broad-based centralized approach, they've generally generated this like uh, blockage where people get stuck at one part in this continuum and they just sort of stay there, which is the thing that worries me about this tiny home thing, because I can already see that becoming kind of a, a stuck, you know? Um, so I think that's another thing that I've experienced in my, in, you know, in my own work. But ultimately for me, last point, I'll get your reaction, um, is that it does come down for me in terms of recognizing what you said, right? It's like uh, recognizing the humanity, re uh, having a personal relationship and getting involved, right? Relationship is the core insight for me, right? Uh, making contact with somebody. Yesterday, I just did it here in Austin where a guy was walking by, a homeless dude, looked at me. I was in the car. I think I was waiting for you, actually. And um, he 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 kind of doubled back. He came back. He's like, I just really wanted to say thank you. Cause like you looked at me and you waved at me and I just want to say thank you. And I was like, wow. yeah, no, no, no worries. And, and we ended up having a 20 minute conversation, by the way, I have no cash. I had no money. It was just a conversation. I, I said, Hey, you want to ride? Like, can I give you a ride somewhere? But it's like, that's what I'm talking about. I think those things make an impact so much more. And, and from a business standpoint, Asus, it's like impossible to scale that it, it, you need to have people everywhere doing little things yeah. like this. Well, and I think part of that to me starts with moving away from the caricature of what homeless, oh, many of us believe homeless people are, which is this combination of drug addicts and crazy people, right? And it's, and I think when you think about it from that perspective, one feels like crazy person that maybe with some medical attention they can help, but it's really hard for me as a person to interact with them because I don't know what they're going to do. Wild, like wild child. The other one is drug addict, which to some extent, I'm like, you did it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think both of those are just yeah, terrible it's a, it's ways to, to think about yeah, it's you know, individuals because both give you excuses to never do anything to help them. And it keeps people at the margins. It, 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 it basically right. paints and, them and in the extreme. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's that's maybe the starting point of rehumanizing individuals who are part of a society. And unless we as 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 individuals as well, I would say, become part of the solution or start becoming part of the solution, this is going to be a bigger, bigger problem that is now you know, going to look very much like you see in many other third world countries where you have these favelas, where you have these, you know, I forget what it was in, in Kenya, the, the areas, it was, it was another term for it, where like this, like really like impoverished, impoverished uh, uh, people that makeshift homes. I mean, just terrible. Sure. You see the same yeah, thing yeah, in Mexico, right? It's and just aluminum like, it's, roofs. It's so terrible Tin when you roofs. see that. Yeah. And I think as a nation, we're just, we're too wealthy as a nation to do that to some of our you know, people that were in our community. And, and that's why I'm super excited about being here. Look, in spite of all this really yeah. heavy issue that we're talking about and what this problem seems so massive, I'm so excited about going to visiting Community First Village because maybe that's part of the answer. Maybe that's a starting point to the type of solutions that could work that really focuses about, to your point, on rebuilding those connections that happen between people and the kind of impact that have, not just for those individuals, but what is that ripple effect that happens from there for everybody else? Last point, Jesus, in terms of the subject, the mental illness, because you made a really interesting point about kind of us 
putting folks at the margin and at the extreme. And that's a big one where people say like, oh, these, it happened just yesterday, actually, in the conversation we we're having with, right. uh, with this one particular investor who's like, well, aren't these people just really crazy half the time? In my work, 20 years, I got to tell you that on a percentage basis, it's a very small minority of people who are legitimately mentally ill, like to the point of schizophrenia. And, and they do exist, no question sure. they do. Yeah, yeah. But the majority of people who... Um, maybe uh, evidence some of these things are people who have created in some way, shape or form a reality around their current situation. It's more like PTSD than it is true mental illness. I, I you know, I gave the story um, to you earlier about Christopher who was one of the guys I met out in LA in a tent comes out and he's actually like pretty well put together. He's got his haircut. He's a guy who's had an education, went to college, we had a whole conversation about the work he was in. I was talking to him for a half hour, like, I mean, perfectly quote normal, right. In right. quotes. And then at the very end, he's like, yeah, but I'm going to be getting, I think I'm in here for another two to three weeks. And I was like, oh, what's going on? He's like, well, my girlfriend's coming back from being overseas. I was like, oh, that's wonderful. And she's got her inheritance, right? And she just inherited $28 million, he says. Now, at that point, I'm going, uh-oh, come on. Like, right. what's the likelihood of that actually being real? But when my wife and I were together and then afterwards, my wife was like, I bet you if that's not true, and chances are it's not, if that's not true, that is such a coping mechanism that he's created that gives him hope. It's like, hey, yeah. I've got a couple more weeks to, that's the, to the put up with That's the lie that tells, he tells himself and say it enough times that it almost feels real. But to your point, that gives him to be able to be in this sort of really difficult situation. So I agree with you. And I mean, I think the kind of mental toll that it would have on individuals having to be worried about every single night, whether or not someone's going to try to attack them, something's going to happen to them. I mean, it, it has to be massive. Yeah, it definitely does. Well, lots more to say about this topic, but we'll move on for now only to remind uh, our audience to check out the sort of more innovative solution. MLF.org is Community First Village, which is here in Austin. That's a place we're going to look at right now. But, um, you know, there are other organizations, Haven in Los Angeles that has two A's, H-A-A-V-E-N, is kind of a sort of Airbnb shared housing type of approach to homelessness. There's a bunch of like these more mom and poppy hacky looking things that are coming up that I think we need to invest more um, and a lot more kind of public private partnership stuff to really help attack this. So anyway, yeah, lots there. Um, let's move on to uh, courage or cringe. Yeah. And we were, we were kind of joking here on courage or cringe that typically we like to throw in a little bit lighter subjects. Today. We, Last what, time we talked about like frozen yogurt and Demi Lovato. I don't know what, like what happened super this heavy. week is like, they're all on the heavier side. But we're going to go um, through them. We're going to want to punch through them. lightly so, and, Tulsi Gabbard tells everyone to stop racializing everything. Um, so as reported by Newsweek, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who represented Hawaii as a Democrat and also successfully ran for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, urged Americans to stop racialization of everyone and everything, right? So was this on the heels of the Academy Awards? Was that like, what, what was the... It just came out. So I, I, I doubt it. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know what sparked this. Yeah. Um, now, I think I, my guess is probably a lot more to do with... Uh, or LeBron, maybe, with some of the stuff that he, well, he tweeted yeah, and re un, undid his tweet. It could be, but it's all it's all related to, sure. yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Derek Chauvin, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, Verdict. And the fact that during the trial, like, literally more people were killed. And the challenge with this is that it all gets painted with the same brush. That's the... Was a, you know, we're not talking about the LeBron situation, but I know exactly what you're referring to, is that it becomes this thing where it's hard not to just say here yet one other person getting killed yeah. and without any kind of the conversation about the specifics as to how it happened. Because the reality is there's bad people doing bad shit all the time. Individuals and cops, by the way, like it happens enough, but you, if you look at it all within one single lens and no matter who, 
like no matter who the person was, what the person was doing, if they happen to be black and they happen to be killed, therefore it was the, the cause for or the opposite. Sure. No matter what the police officer was doing, they're always right. They're always justified. And both of you and I talked about the caricatures of that. And I think that's a little bit of the issue that maybe I'm guessing there's some response to that, that she was, that she was, maybe it's, maybe it's that because I feel the timing is sort of related to it, right? What exactly did she say? So she said, look, she put up actually a video on Facebook where she said, my dear friends and fellow Americans, please, please let us stop the racialization of everyone and everything. Racialism. We're all children of God and are therefore family in the truest sense, no matter what our race or ethnicity. This is aloha. This is what our country and our world needs. The mainstream propaganda, media, and politicians, they want us to constantly focus on our skin color and the skin color of others because it helps them politically or financially. Aloha means respect and love for others. It's what enables us to see beyond the skin color and see the soul, the person within. She urged Americans to cultivate aloha in our hearts and not allow ourselves to be led down the dark, divisive path of racialism and hate. Now, she says a couple more things, but that's yeah, sort of the that's essence the of it, right? That's the gist now, of it, This yeah. comes you know, at a time, of course, where racial inequalities and systematic racism you know, those topics continue to play a pretty large role in our social and political conversation. You know, even with, as mentioned, the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict. Yep. So many more cases have continued to arise around black people being shot by police and all the controversy that those sort of create. So in essence, many of the issues which were sort of brought to light at, at a very large scale uh, and raised by the BLM movement are still relevant now, right? Yeah. Like it, it, those hasn't necessarily changed. There's also been like rise in anti-Asian, you know, hate crimes. And, you know, of course, I said, it's always a oldie but goodie, you know, when everything else is missing, you can do little anti-immigrant views, right? That could happen all the time. So the, the question really for this, in this specific case, for, for Tulsi Gabbard is that, is this really sound advice, you know, of how to begin to heal or this much more like wishful thinking or even right, worse, right, right. insensitive, na- in, uh, I can never say that word. Naive. Naive. Yeah, yeah. Just being naive, right? And just insensitive. Uh especially come from someone that is not actually directly impacted, right? right? So to me, that was a question why that was a really interesting one. Right. Because you could say, look, if you give well, we, full we benefit of the doubt, yeah. there's nothing wrong with what she's saying. I mean, it's all like, I, I get it. I think yeah. it makes sense. But but does it, does it come off as being insensitive as you're not one that is impacted one way or the other? Right. And again, on that part, we don't know, right? I yeah. mean, she, I, I think she's been described or maybe described herself as a woman of color at some point, right? She's Isn't she a South Asian uh, she, I think she has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so just, there's something there. Yeah. So we don't know what, yeah. you know, she's contended with. But look, I, I mean, for me, it's a courage. So I'll start with that. Um, I think that the there's like diff, it's like a spectrum. You can be in the color is the only thing that kind of for us, by us, the kind of, you know, that's the lens by which you see everything. And you put people in those in those buckets. You and I were joking about an unnamed company that gave us some material to look at. And it was a transgender dating thing. And the girl was saying, I never date white guys and cisgender. And I was like, well, isn't that like you saying that is, so you're basically saying without having met this person, you're going to disqualify him because of his race. I think there's a name for that. It starts with an R. And so, um, so, so there's that end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is the colorblind spectrum, right? Right. It's all good. Nothing, you know, we're all equal. Nobody sees anything. And I don't know why we just can't have the kind of colorful perspective, which is we're all made in different ways with different experiences, different cultures that are all beautiful. And we should all discover those things about those things that are beautiful and share them and do all that stuff. Um, and, and that to me is like the more logical communitarian 
approach that kind of builds people up because of their differences, identifies the beauty in their differences, but doesn't make it like a, you know, a hammer to beat somebody with or beat somebody over. So look, I know you can, you know, Tulsi in some respects is a little bit controversial, right? Because she's a Democrat. She ran on the ticket, but she holds some kind of more pro-military views. Mm -hmm. She was against the war. She was was in the military. You know, she maybe has a bit of a libertarian streak in her. Like there's, so I get that. She's now, will now be considered a more traditional liberal uh, yeah. Democrat, right? Yeah, um, I think so. But but although look, she's, I mean, she's still Democrat though. So there's still plenty of things. True. She's, but but she, you know, we're not. Gonna, we're going to talk about it next. But she's been one of those folks that she introduced. Very critical trans, about the yeah, transgender or transgender and, and yep. introduced bills that would ban transgender, sure. uh, you know, women from being participating in in, uh, in in women's sports. So there's plenty about her that makes her controversial. So I think that's also when you see this coming from her, it probably makes it a little bit hard, I think, for some people to see this and like in its truest, like just Yeah. But if you actually live that quote and I read it from anywhere else, like yeah. on anything, I'm going, Yeah, that makes total sense to me. So I'm a courage. You know you what's at? interesting is that if I would have like imagine that quote comes from The Rock. Right? Um uh, or um um I always forget his name, but I, I, he's cool. awesome. The, the guy who played Aquaman. Um Oh uh, D- Momoa, Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Yeah. Like they're both have Hawaiian roots, right? And sure. they you know say aloha all the time. Jason Momoa says all the time. Like he I would literally you could literally pull that out and have him saying that. And they'd be like, Yeah. And, and awesome. Arrow would be like, Jason Momoa right is awesome. On. Everyone loves Jason Momoa. Everyone loves the rock. Yeah. But part of I think why everyone loves both of those guys is because they have a very positive view of the world. Even though they both have taken social stance, they both have like called things out when they, when they think something is wrong. So, do you not think Tulsi's done similar though? Positive yeah, yeah. I, I, I just think, think she, that Tulsi has she has her own controversies that have basically yeah, yeah, yeah. kept her from being viewed. And the fact that she is a politician, she also herself has benefited from some of this stuff that she's complaining about now. Yeah. That she's complaining about. So I think that's the part where it's a little bit hard to sort of give her hundred percent benefit of the benefit of the doubt. But look, I came down on courage. I was mostly cringe, but I came out encouraged because, and then frankly, we, we look at the reason I came out encouraged is mm-hmm. when you think about the cultural insight, the cultural insight that I, that I actually love of what she said is the whole term of aloha and what that actually means, sure. right? The whole thing about mean, mean respect and love for others. And that being like, that's first and foremost, every, we could disagree it's about a bunch of stuff. It's, it's higher, higher order, order, right? Right. Yeah. So even when we disagree, we're going to respect each other. Even when we disagree, we're still going to love each other. Yeah. And you see that. And I don't know personally many Hawaiian people directly, but I do love that sentiment. And to the degree that that sentiment and that cultural insight can be more openly applied to more of how we treat each other, mm-hmm. regardless of where we fall within the political spectrum, I think is a it's a better thing. Even if I think her timing is a little bit off, even if I think her saying it doesn't come off as true and genuine. Like I wish she would have been saying this when she was still in office. Yeah, and she did to some extent, but it was but you know like she also was part of the problem in my mind, like like many politicians, but. At the end of the day, I, I, I love what that can represent. And I put it more in the context of, once again, The Rock, uh, Jason sure. Momoa, yeah. and they say that all the time. And I think that kind of, having that kind of orientation is a better thing for our society than not. All right. One for one. Courage and courage. Courage or courage. So um, next one, a federal judge dismisses a transgender case, right? So as reported by NBC News, federal judge Robert uh, Chetigny, Chetigny, I guess, uh, dismissed. You know, the, that's not how you pronounce that man's name. I, I, I'm terrible pronounce people's name. And uh, he knows is, who he is. And this is from the guy named Jesus, by the way. Right. So <laughs> I get it. I get it. Uh, dismissed a lawsuit that sought to prevent transgender athletes from competing in girls, high school sports in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Connecticut Inter- Interclassic 
inter, inter, yeah, scholastic, interscholastic mm-hmm. athletic conference, which oversees scholastic sports in the state, allows high school athletes to compete in sports according to their gender identity. Now, the lawsuit was filed a year ago by three cisgender runners who argued they were deprived of wins, state title, and athletic opportunities by being forced to compete against two transgender sprinters. Um, now, the lawsuit was dismissed by this federal judge on procedural grounds, right? Saying in the ruling that there was no dispute to resolve because the two transgender athletes have graduated and plaintiffs cannot identify other female transgender athletes. Uh, these are suits that the Trump administration has supported, right? But whose support was now withdrawn with the Biden administration coming in, uh, coming into office, right? Now, conservative lawmakers in more than 20 states have introduced legislation to ban or limit transgender athletes from competing on teams or sports that align with their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, laws banning transgender women and girls in participating in organized sports have been signed in Idaho, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. And, you know, this is very front and center as well as some of the culture wars um, that, that we're seeing right now. And I think the way that, you know, once again, if you look at caricatures to some extent of, of this issue is you have on the one hand people who argue for fairness or perceived fairness of forces gender women as it relates to, to competing in sports. And in the second bucket, which is all around, well, yeah, but what does that mean to discrimination of transgender women? Um, there's more to this, but in essence, when we think about this specific uh, ruling, uh, courage or cringe? On the decision. On the decision, yeah. So it's, it's courage or cringe on the decision to dismiss the case. So uh, do you want me to start or you want to go? I'll, I'll, I'll go. Okay, go. Uh, 100% cringe. 100% cringe uh, because it's completely passing the buck. Kicking the can. Kicking the can. And it's like, it's, it's such happy a stupid to do it probably. argument. It's like, for, I don't need to touch this school. one. No, it's like, it's such a dumb argument for high school because you're saying, listen, if, you, if the case just takes long enough, like you're going to be always... Say, oh, well, the, the people you were talking about, they've, they've graduated. They've graduated. You got They're no longer years, impacted so by that like, situation. Yeah. Drag it out for, you know, unless something happens like right when they're freshmen and then you have four years to figure it out. Even then, sometimes it completely doesn't work. address the issues that are there. And I think in a, such a controversial issue like this one, because there's plenty of people that are arguing both, both sides of the equation. And I feel that we're going to have to get to someplace pretty quickly where we're going to have to have like better law or interpretation of law associated with this because it is concerning when you have, and especially some of these cases, like individual states, individual counties that are passing these laws that I think eventually they're all going to probably end up in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. right? Some it's going to have to, um, because but even all, then, all, all of these come into the whole title nine sure. sort of point of view but that even then, women it, yeah. and, and, and men should have the same equal access to sports, Sure, which even that doesn't fully address the issue that we're talking about here. I just hate the fact that they, instead of tackling the real hard issues of this case, and taking a stance, they just kick the can by saying, oh, well, they just happened but to But I mean, graduate. okay, so two things. One is, even if it does get adjudicated by the Supreme Court, ultimately, like, say, for instance, the abortion debate, yep. Roe v. Wade became federal law. Many states still have not, impl- you know, or, or have not as fully implemented it as other states, that, that restriction. So there's still like a local uh, dynamic to it. There's and for then, sure a local dynamic, yeah. And then playing the contrarian on what you just said, though, um, the, the the judge or any of the lawyer could say, it's like, hey, dude, we're not the, we're not the legislative branch. Like, we have to look at this as a, as a process of law. And if X wasn't done, there's nothing I can do about it. So right. why do you want me to legislate from the bench? That's not my job. In fact, I could say that I shouldn't be doing that, even if I believe something. That's what makes me separate. That's what makes me part of the judicial branch. Right, but if the... but. Sure, but if is the question here that they were raising? I guess it depends on how the the, the lawsuit was structured, right? 
if they're saying, if these athletes are saying that because of the transgender athletes competing, competing mm -hmm. it stopped them from the opportunity of being able to basically be more successful in the sport, does that issue stop the second that they all graduate from high school? What if they brought that to when no, they were all seniors, it, it, yeah, right? No, no, that's and, what I'm saying. And then the issue is like, well, but that doesn't actually address the problem that they were bringing up. That yes, because of where they are in their right. high so maybe career, your case is that they should. You know what I'm saying like, like that's the part. Like, well, no, actually address yeah. it. Address what, the issue that right. they're bringing up. What I'm hearing you say is that maybe they should have adjudicated a narrower part of the question, right? Because what they're saying is you're no longer in high school, therefore anything related to high school sports is completely inadmissible. Maybe it's the way that that case was set up. It should have been brought in a different way. Well, so it wasn't so much yeah, emphasis let, on let high school you, sports, but more on emphasis on equal access, things like that. Because sure. it, how you build these things and how you present them has to do with what outcome you get. And, and I also, know enough about law to know, you know that. In the, in the culture war perspective, um, you know, as an example, when this case first came up, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal opinion piece uh, that was written by Abigail Schreier. Mm hmm where she expressed a, an argument that basically, look, when transgender girls compete on girls' sports teams, she, she wrote, cisgender girls can't win. Cannot right? win. Cannot win. That's yes. what she said, right? Now, what that opinion piece happened to leave out is the fact that two days after that Connecticut lawsuit was filed by the cisgender girls' family, this is the three girls from the same case, mm -hmm. one of those girls beat one of the transgender girls named the lawsuit in a Connecticut state championship. Right. So even there, you see this, this, this case where First of all, the, those are still caricatures of the arguments. There are. And this notion that you cannot win, that, well, that, of course, that have of course, no of, shot at this. Of course, there's always going to be. But isn't that the exception like, that proves the rule, though, Jesus? Because, I mean, there has been a number of transgender, transgender athletes. Like I looked up uh, Lauren, uh, Laurel Hubbard, New Zealand weightlifter, won two gold medals at the Pacific Games. College senior CeCe Telfer became NCAA Division II national champ at the 400 meter. June Eastwood, um, uh, same thing, same school. At the high school level, this woman Terry Miller won a girls 200 meter dash actually in Connecticut. I think she was one of the cases that this is about. So there, couldn't you say that the fact that the uh, transgender woman lost in a, in a field with biological wimp females is just the exception that proves the rule. Like, couldn't you just say that? Well, no, I think the way that I view it is this notion that if, if transgender girls are part of the sports that cisgender girls can never win is just not true. No, I know that, right. but so, it's not so true the, on, an, on an absolute basis. That's but right. I, I get so, that. But. So then you, and then you have, look, I think the, you know, what I was sort of thinking about what the comparison is here is like, I think the kids will have more of a case. Imagine being a, a 10 year old kid playing when Shaq was playing. If there's like any unfairness, like having this kid that walks in already being 6'5", at 10, whatever, however, I have no idea how, how Shaq was at 10 years old. But probably 6'5". Like, probably, right? Yeah. Like, like Ooh, that's an unfair two. advantage, right? Like, yeah. to, you see what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of thing that to me falls more in the category of like, right. how do you solve for that? I just hated that this case didn't actually, I feel like the way that they addressed it doesn't actually address the issue. Even in, in once again, this is us not knowing and me not knowing well enough how exactly it was framed, the, the problem. But simply having these these kids graduate from high school doesn't actually solve the question at hand. That right. By their perception, did it actually impede these other kids from actually winning? Um, which, you know, like once again, I'm, I'm actually in the, in the camp of being more for the idea of actually having these, these trans kids compete. But it just doesn't, I feel like this guy just basically passed the buck. Yeah. No, I, so I agree with you that it's cringe, but probably for very different reasons. Right. Um, look, I, I think ultimately loving someone and caring for them does not mean that you enable them in all things. And I think that the fundamental issue at stake is that the data indicates on, you know, re, uh, sexual reassignment, however you want to call this, the data is super, super, super clear across decades and decades that 
these procedures do not positively impact the emotional well-being of people who are suffering gender dysphoria. In fact, um, the biggest study was done in Sweden over 30 years in a culture that's super supportive of the transgender um, you know, population. And 15 years after surgical reassignment or sex change, the suicide rates of those who've undergone those is 20 times higher than comparable peers, right? So on a practical level, um, this is about the well-being of people from my perspective and loving them does not mean that, you know, we necessarily enable them in, 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 in all things, right. And just say, Hey, this is great. If you feel, if you really feel deep in your soul that you're a woman and want to, and want to operate as a woman and compete as a woman, we're going to support you hundred percent. There's other things going on that don't always get addressed that way. And then the second point for me, I, I agree with everything you said about cringe and the case and all that I, I'm there, but the issue itself is what I'm kind of addressing now is that um, the advantages piece to my mind is of course, fundamentally true. It's a hundred percent true. And, and again, this is data. This is not from, you know, the, the, this but, is, but even on that, Charlie, like yeah. literally when I search it up, like article after article, yeah. there's one for one against one for one again, like right. there is plenty of stats that you can point on one side versus the other, how long people's hormones actually stay with them. After starting a yeah. homework transition, like where well, there's a benefit, there's also like people who even cisgender women who have a higher, like just naturally a higher hormone raise than other than, than other women. By the way, the biggest issue is how are you going to police this? Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't, when, when someone says, I don't believe that this person is a cisgender woman, like I'm sure never going to let anyone else try to like test my daughter for this. If someone just accuses them in a competition, like good luck getting past me on that on that one, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. See what I'm so you have all these but issues. I agree. That are, the whole thing is a, is a hot mess. Like, the whole thing is. But let me just address the performance issue really mm -hmm. quickly because I actually looked this up. Okay, uh, this is from a physiologist at the University of uh, in New Zealand. Okay, um, transgender women's performances generally decline as their testosterone level does. So that's true, right? So basically, yeah. part of the you know the minimum guideline for actually competing is that you have a lower than you otherwise would, right? You won't, you don't have testosterone in your system because testosterone creates power speed, that yeah. kind of thing. Right. Um, but some of their advantages don't go away, right? Bigger bone structure, greater lung capacity, larger heart size, all of those things remain and an ability to remain, to regain muscle mass after a period of not training. Right. So all of those things are part of it even if the testosterone level has dropped down right. to the acceptable limit. So what I'm saying is apples to apples, you're always going to find the exception. Always. Of course, there's always going to be yeah. an exception. I mean, like, look, I, but right, even that, like, I do but, functional fitness. I would never, I would, as much as I've done for four years, you put me against like one of the women competitors in CrossFit, right. they would <laughs> kill me. You. They would kill me. So there's always the exception. But my point is all things being equal. I don't think scientifically or physiologically, anyone can argue that there's not an inherent advantage in a, you know, a person who was born a biological male who's now competing as a female athlete. But it's also the advantage of the people that are born, you know, from NBA athletes. You know, if you're, play, if you're a girl playing against Candace Parker, you probably felt pretty disadvantaged, mm -hmm. right? This woman is a complete badass, super, I don't even know how tall she is, like 6'2", or super, sure. how, how, taller than that. I mean, I, I don't know how tall she is. There's a lot of that's already going on. And, you know, to your point about the mental wellness of these kids that are going through this, right? And all the impact that is there. I just don't think if, if our, our starting point is the mental wellness of those kids, Banning them from things is not going to make that mental wellness better. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, if you just start from that, it, well, it doesn't make their mental wellness better. Sure. And I think the issues they're going to have are probably going to be worse. I mean, frame that way, I would agree with you as well. But I mean, I think that's, you could say the other extreme of that would be, yes, but enabling them in all of this activity that, that tells them that they're operating just as any biologically born female would is also not going to help them. So like, I think we have to, you know, look at this as we do with the homelessness issue as a complex issue mm-hmm. that requires a variety of things, um, of variety of, of ways to address it. But I think we have to at least start with a baseline of actually looking at the data and the science and say like, Hey, these are, these are apples and oranges and we have to address it as such. Look, it's a thorny well, issue. I'm sure the, the judge was very happy for that sure. this thing and, came and up. And therefore this, why this is such a cringe thing to me, because instead of chipping away of actually having more of a point of view on the issue, it just passed the buck. Passing the buck. Passing the buck. No <laughs> buck up pass on the next one though. Our last issue. Uh, I'm sure we'll issue, get yeah. to. It. Like By the way, super we're, light issues. We're we're, like, <laughs> we're still uh we're still at a thousand for different reasons. So uh, for different, don't, yeah. don't ruin it. Don't yeah, ruin it. Today issues. we're just agreeing to disagree. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, so Manhattan no, no longer prosecutes prostitution. So this is reported by New York Times. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance mm-hmm. uh, moved to dismiss thousands of cases dating back decades, as his office announced that they will no longer prosecute prostitution and unlicensed massage. Now, Mahan joins um, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn in no longer prosecuting those arrested for prostitution, but instead focusing on those who profit from it. They dismissed 914 open cases involving prostitution and unlicensed massage, along with 5,080 cases in which the charge was loitering for the purpose of prostitution. Some of these dated back to the 70s and 80s when New York waged a war against prostitution in an effort to clean up its image at the center of a iniquity and, and, and vice, right? Mm-hmm. So, and this actually was a lot, even when we think about uh, Times Square, it was a lot of the, the cleanup that happened there between the 70s and 80s. Um, now, Mr. Mr. Vance said, over the last decade, we've learned from those with lived experience and from our own experience on the ground that criminally prosecuting prostitution does not make us safer and too often achieves the opposite result by further marginalizing vulnerable New Yorkers. The office will continue to prosecute other crimes related to prostitution, including patronizing sex workers. Right. So in other words, the customer is going to be, it's illegal to be the customer, not, in, not illegal to be the vendor. Right. Uh, patronizing sex workers, promoting prostitution and sex trafficking. Right. And said this policy will not stop in from bringing other charges that stem from prostitution related arrests. So in other words, they will still prosecute pimps and sex traffickers as well as people who pay for sex. Right. But not the actual sex workers themselves. Right. Um, so once again, focus on those that are, that are benefit that are profiting and maybe to extend and not without punishing the people who are the victims in many cases of prostitution, uh, sex workers, sex traffic, et cetera, right? Um, now, some additional things here. Sex workers have been fighting for decriminalization for decades, uh, including in 2019 with the formation of Decrim New York, a coalition that supports full decriminalization and have lobbied lawmakers. Last month, Mayor Bill de Blasio and his wife, Charlene McRae, called on the state to end criminal penalties for sex workers. Ms. McCray said, the communities hit hardest by the continued criminalization of sex work and human trafficking are overwhelmingly LGBTQ. They are people of color and they are undocumented immigrants. Sex, wor- sex works is a means of survival for many of these marginalized groups. By the way, now her, her comments are, to me, are very different than what I, what I think in this case that the, um, the, 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 yeah, the district attorney's office for New York is doing. But basically, in this case, the courage or cringe is specifically on the position that the Mahan district attorney is taking in terms of the, of no longer yeah. uh, prosecuting uh, those arrested for prostitution. So I went first last time, Charlie, you start. Cringe. 
huge, gigantic, enormous. Right. Give me more than that, or just blimp size, <laughs> blimp size cringe. Okay. Um, for a number of reasons, I think about this. By the way, a lot of this is informed by the work that we've done with the homeless for twenty years, because okay. the overlap between runaways, homelessness, particularly with single women. And prostitution and human trafficking is enormous. It's not one-to-one, of course, but it's like huge overlap. That Venn diagram is a huge overlap between those things. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, not a single woman ever that I've ever met who had sex for money is not previously wounded either before she does it or after she does it. Sure. Not a one. Now, some may believe that they're not, and then years later come to the realization, oh my gosh, I was living in this kind of reality that I explained earlier, right? By the, by the way, one, yeah. one, one thing to note on this, and I, I realized I didn't actually include it, but the approach that they're taking in, I think in my hand, in Brooklyn, and maybe I'm sure in some of the other ones, is rather than arresting them, they're putting them into counseling. Sure. Right? So there is some... They're trying, I mean, at least it sounds like attempt to reform people that are in that life for whatever reason, but there's but also simply not just putting them in jail. I understand that, so just but at the same context, it, I, that's helpful. But at the same time, there is a very significant movement around the rights of sex workers, celebrating sex work, making sex work, not just decriminal, but acceptable. And, you know, and so, I agree with, and that's actually yeah. why I, when I added the notes of, of, um, Bill de Blasio's wife, that's her comments are much more along the lines of that. Right. But they're related. Those are related they're issues. They're related, but but they yeah. are different. At least in the case of the Courage or Cringe Forward, how the DA office is handling that is not saying like we're making this now legal. We're simply saying that our efforts are going to be focused on those that profit, not on the people that are basically. I think this fact. is this is in practice. There's a, there's probably I could give like a six week dissertation on the on the cringe here, but I don't have that kind Let's of. Let's start with a ten minute. Version. Let's start not even a ten minute. I'll give you the five, the, five minute the, the, the one minute. I okay. mean, so number one is you've got a a customer vendor relationship, and you're saying only one side of it is illegal, but you're not actually addressing the transaction itself. The transaction itself remains illegal, but the players in it have different kind of legal. Um, ramifications to them. Okay. So I don't, I think that that's unworkable for just from the word go. Number two is the human element that I just described. Number three is I view this very much as I would like the issue of abortion with respect to, you don't penalize or criminalize or throw in jail women who've had abortions, but I don't believe abortion should be legal, even though it is at my position is if the issue is an issue that is, you know, bad for society, bad for community, bad for individuals, just like murder or arson or robbery, we should have laws against it. And that's separate from what we choose to do with the players involved, because I do believe that the women having worked with them are vulnerable. They are exposed. They are getting taken advantage of. They shouldn't be put in jail. I'm 100% on that, 100%. But saying that now prostitution is no longer legal, but if we catch some Johns and some pimps, we're going to get like the the, the naivete of that. I want to talk about back to that word. All these things are interrelated and so is human trafficking, dude. So is human trafficking. Like that's the thing where like you can't just like now we don't put the women in jail and somehow not in some way enable the human traffickers. And that's what we do. So for me, like across the board, this one was really easy. Um, I think it's a, it's a cringe. So I, I'm going to ruin it, Charlie. All right. We came close. All right. Well, I'm going courage. There's always there's, next week. <laughs> sorry, next week. The reason I'm going courage is that I, I like the orientation of how they're thinking about this complex issue. And I think the orientation, maybe to me, how I read into this, the starting point is thinking about these women's as, women as victims first. Mm-hmm. And if you think about them as victim first, then you're not treating them as criminal first, which is, I feel like that's what we're moving away from. By the way, and that's, I'm not actually going to even argue about the, 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 the comment that was made. And to your point, the move to decriminalize prostitution in general, which is a, to me, is a, it, they are related, but it's a very different thing. 
at least from the, 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 the step that the DA has taken them in hand, right? So if you see them as victims first and not as criminal first, then helping these women get out of those situations, maybe they have been sex trafficked. Maybe they, to your point, are just wounded, wounded individuals that have ended up in the situation. But I, I do wonder what the stats are for those women that end up in a situation is who's keeping them in that situation? Who else is sure. benefiting from doing this? Who are the pimps? Who are the Johns that are basically keeping them in that situation and really focusing the energy on those folks and arresting them. And that's what I see this as, and you're right, it is a complex issue. And to the degree that they are, and hopefully can help some of these women get out of that and start with giving them a hand first rather than putting them in jail, or putting them in counseling first rather than, than, than condemning them. Because look, if I think of the day, the only people that, are, that get arrested are the people that are already the victims and everyone else walks out yeah, free. That's, that's never been right. That's a problem, right? Uh, so, I agree with you. For all those reasons, I come in courage. Um, I, I definitely have much more mixed feelings as it relates to to thinking about the decriminalization of of sex work, which is sort of the broader issue that I'm sure this sort of helps, whether I want to admit it or not. It probably helps that that, part that, of the that, same, that cause yeah. more than it than it than it hurts it. Sure. You know, in some ways, I'm in the in the camp of I can see myself arguing both cases, and because I think about it in some ways similar to I think of like drug usage, right? Like the best way to address some of the drug usage problems, in many cases, start regulating it, right? Because it's the lack of regulation that creates all these additional crime and all the additional like bad things that happen. Mm-hmm. Where if you regulate some of these things, there is ways to sort of rein it in to protect people, to protect people on both sides of the equation. Uh, so I can see myself arguing that, but that's always a much broader, broader problem. So that's why, look, when I think it's specific about it with the DA, what they're doing there, I go more courage. And once again, I think I've made my point as to why, why I think it's the case. Close, but no cigar. Close. close Very but close. No cigar. Any um, parting thoughts, words of encouragement or wisdom? Yeah. Any insight from this episode? I think the homeless situation is, is, is one that, you know, is a massive, massive issue. And look, I think we all, sorry about myself, have to reframe or yeah, reframe how we think about people that are in this situation, um, not just as those outcasts that we can, that we just should just avoid not making eye contact with, but like start thinking of them as, as human beings. And any steps that we can individually take at helping these folks regain their humanity, even if it's as simple to the example you made of simply acknowledge them, just looking and just shake your head, you know, like, are you doing even that alone, the, the bare basics that we, the, the bare minimum that we do with anyone that's, that's walking by us. I think even that, I think, could potentially have a ripple, ripple effect. Or maybe it could be a, a nice first small move, false, small step to move us in a better direction of actually thinking of these folks as part of our community, not as some throwaway that are, that are no longer. Agree with you. If you're, if you're listening to this show, uh, you are part of the solution, period. It's, it is about those small things, and it is about relationship and acknowledgement as a starting point. So definitely agree with you on that. Okay. Wanted to give thanks to uh, Alan Graham and Community First Village. Again, reminder, that's mlf.org. We haven't actually visited, but we will, so we'll have more to say about that. But you guys should go check it out, mlf.org, Community First Village in Austin. I also want to thank, because I forgot to at the top, uh, John, John Popola, who is the CEO of Emergent Order, in whose production company we are producing this podcast right now. And I also wanted to thank uh, Nick Chamberlain, who is our illustrious producer. Nick, what's the name of your, what's your, uh, your shop? NCC Audio. NCCAudio.com. NCCAudio.com. So hit up, hit up Nick for all of your uh, podcasting needs. He just moved to Austin, but um, is helping people all over the country get set up for podcasting. So he's given us a hand here. Really good guy who's got great um, 
executive producer credits on a number of very big podcasts. So you'll be well served by checking out Nick Chamberlain. And lastly, remember to subscribe to this show. Please subscribe, tell a friend and um, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. Jesus, next week, we've got uh, Rafa Hernandez Brito, the voice of NFL's uh, Cleveland Browns, the NBA's Cavaliers. So I'm excited about that. And I'll let people... Very excited about that. We're blossoming. The show is growing. So it's all good. But um, anyway, so we'll uh, see you then uh, next week on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.